Hey. Can I help you? Do you want something? I'll take that one. Oh, man. The video bumpers for this series have been so great. But this one is my absolute favorite because it stars our very own Colleen Langlands, who is back in the production booth. Can we give her a huge hand? And I was joking with her, we should have had an award made because I feel like she deserves an Oscar for that depiction of Donut Shop employee. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. She's good. It's like her true self truly shown out. And so, and that was awesome. But we are in, but what we saw from that video is that regardless of whether you're a donut or whether you're a human being, no one wants to be the last one picked, which is the series that we've been in for the past two weeks and that we're going to be wrapping up today. But let me ask you all another question. How many football fans do we have in the house today? Awesome, quite a few. And it is a great time of the year to be a football fan. College football kicked off yesterday. The NFL season is just a week and a half away and it is a good time of the year. But if you're a hardcore NFL fan, you understand that the season doesn't kick off in the fall. It actually kicks off in the spring with the NFL draft. And in the draft, there are 256 players who are chosen. And I can imagine for every single one of these players growing up, they wanted to be the first one chosen. Sort of like us when we were kids on the playground and we were lined up against the fence and there were two captains in charge of choosing the teams. We all wanted to be the first, if not one of the first ones picked. And if we weren't the first, we definitely didn't want to be last. But the reality is there's always someone who's last. And the NFL draft is no different. And the player who is picked last, does anyone know what title is given to that player? Yell it out. Mr. Irrelevant. You guys are the true fans. Mr. Irrelevant. Imagine being this guy. Basically being given a title that says, you're not important, you're not useful, and you're not going to make any difference. And after the draft, almost always, they interview Mr. Irrelevant. And one of the questions that they ask him is, how does it feel, like, how does it feel to be the last one picked? And usually he toes the party line and he says something along the lines of, you know what, it's just an honor to be picked. And it is, because statistics tell us that we have a better chance of being struck by lightning than being drafted by an NFL team. But still, you got to imagine, being mystery relevant, it has to be a little bit difficult, a little bit embarrassing, maybe even a little bit demoralizing to be in his position and to have been the last one picked. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. And that we've been looking at people that when the world saw them, they said, you're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not qualified enough. You are not good enough. And they would have picked them last. But when God looked at them, he saw someone very different. And he said that in me, you are strong enough. In me, you are smart enough. In me, you are qualified enough. In me, you are enough. And he didn't choose them last. Rather, he chose them first. And then he used them to do what only God can do, which is something truly extraordinary. 
And so today we're gonna be wrapping up this series by looking at one of Jesus' disciples and his name was Matthew. And Matthew had made some terrible mistakes and as a result, he was despised by his people. And when we pick up his story in the Gospel of Luke, which is the third book in the New Testament, Luke tells us that Jesus was in this city called Capernaum, which was right along the Sea of Galilee. And Luke tells us that after this, Jesus went out, after this meaning that he had just healed a paralyzed man, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, also known as Matthew, and sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And so he got up, he left everything, and he followed Jesus. And something that we have to understand about this time in the history of Israel was that they were under Roman occupation, which not only meant that there was a military presence in Israel, but also the Jews had to pay taxes to Rome. And there was so much corruption within the Roman tax system. You think our IRS is bad? You have no idea what these people were dealing with. Because tax collectors could basically charge anything and could tax anything and everything, and oftentimes they did. And they taxed almost any type of goods. It could have been meat, fish, produce, letters, livestock, anything. And many times they also put tolls on roads and bridges. And so this is what they did. And as long as Rome received their cut, they didn't really care. They didn't really care what these people did. So of course, as you can imagine, they charged extra, extra in taxes. And what they did with this extra money is they put it in their own pockets. And so if you wanted to get rich, tax collecting was a great business to go into. But as you can imagine, because they did this, the Jews hated them because they saw them as extortionists, which they were. But what made it even worse was that when the Romans conquered a region, they would hire the locals to do this, to do this work of tax collecting. And so as you can imagine, having fellow Jews ripping you off wasn't exactly the best thing. And so they were so angry at them. And they saw these tax collectors as sellouts and as traitors. And Matthew was one of them. And in Israelite society, tax collectors were really towards the bottom of the barrel. They had very low status in that society. And they were really stripped of their social and their religious privileges. They were banned from entering into the synagogue, which was considered to be the center of Jewish life. And they were also not allowed to testify in a Jewish court because they were viewed as liars. And so Matthew's choice of life had social, financial, and spiritual consequences. Can you imagine choosing a career that would isolate, ostracize, and separate you from your family, friends, and your neighbors for the rest of your life? And this was Matthew's situation. This was his predicament. And it seemed like there was no going back. But then one day, a day came, and this day would be the strangest, but at the same time, one of the most amazing days of Matthew's life. Because Matthew, just like everyone else, had heard about this Jesus Person. He had heard about the incredible miracles he had performed, his paradigm-shifting teachings, and he knew that Jesus was in Capernaum that day, same town. And so one day, and I'm going to be reading into the story a little bit, but as I was reading this verse this past week, this is how I imagined that it played out. And so one day, I can imagine that Matthew was sitting at his tax booth, just like he did every single day. And off in the distance, he likely saw a crowd coming towards him. 
And experience had taught Matthew that unless he was gonna tax these people, he should keep his head down and look busy to prevent him, him from making eye contact with his fellow Jews who despised his very existence. And so I can imagine that's what he did. And he had his head down and he fully expected this crowd to just walk on by, but they didn't. And he heard the footsteps of these people stop right in front of his booth. And so he slowly lifted up his head to see that it was none other than this man, Jesus, standing right in front of him. And Jesus, I can imagine, likely looked into Matthew's eyes and looked at him with a compassion that Matthew hadn't seen in years. But there was probably a knot in Matthew's stomach because he was likely afraid, maybe even nervous, that Jesus was just gonna lay into him, light him up because of the career choice that he had made because he, had, he was ripping off his people, stealing from them, ruining people's lives, his own people's lives. And I can also imagine that for many of the Jews who were with Jesus that day, that's exactly what they wanted Jesus to do, expected Jesus to do, to give this man what they believed he deserved. But Jesus did something very different, stunning, in fact. And he spoke two words to Matthew, follow me. And as soon as those words left Jesus' mouth, I can imagine that there was probably a collective gasp that came from the crowd. Because out of everyone, these people would have chosen to be disciples of Jesus. Matthew would have been the last one they would have picked. Because we have to understand that to be a disciple of a rabbi at the time was considered a huge honor. The dream of every Jewish boy. Jewish children, Jewish boys, they studied, they trained for their entire childhood even to get a shot at being one of these disciples. And then only the best and the brightest were chosen. Sort of like getting into Harvard, the most difficult college to get into in this country. It has an acceptance rate of less than 5%. And I can imagine it was probably even more difficult than that. It was something that everyone wanted, but only very few were chosen for. And what does Jesus do? He picks the guy who's the most hated, the most rejected, the most reviled, the most unclean person imaginable. And I can also imagine that when Matthew, when Jesus said to him, follow me, that Matthew was stunned. He probably looked around thinking, are you, are you talking to me? You're talking, you're talking to me? And when it finally sunk in, that Jesus was extending this invitation to him. There were probably a lot of questions that went through his mind. What am I supposed to do with, about my tax booth? Where are you going to lead me, Jesus? What are you going to ask me to do? But he likely felt an exhilaration and a joy that he had never experienced before. Because for so long, he maybe had believed, he maybe even had been told that because of what he had done, because of the lives that he had ruined, the money that he had stolen, the mistakes that he had made, that God didn't want to have anything to do with him, that God could never, ever love him, never, ever use him. But on this day, through this man, Jesus, God was communicating to him a very different message. And although abandoning his tax booth would cost him his job, his wealth, his life of luxury, he understood that if he followed Jesus, that he would gain something so much greater. And so in that moment, he got up and he followed. And what we know is that Matthew followed Jesus for the rest of his life. 
And yesterday night, if you're a sports fan or even if you just read the news, something shocking, a little bit shocking, happened in the sports world, in the NFL world, in that a quarterback by the name of Andrew Luck, 29 years old, at the peak of, and in the prime of his career, he abruptly retired. And he walked away from tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And I thought this was so incredibly fascinating that someone would choose to turn their back on a game that they loved so much and all of this money, this fame, endorsements, et cetera, et cetera, but he did. And so I was reading story after story as to why he did this, why he chose this. And Andrew Luck's story is that for the past four years, he's been struggling with injuries, pretty severe, pretty serious injuries that have debilitated him. And one of the things, one of the words that he said really struck me in that he said that in the past four years, he hasn't been able to live the life that he's wanted. And so when I read those words, I was thinking in my head, I wonder if he's thinking about his future, and he probably is, about the fact that if he continues along this path, that his body is gonna be so beat up that later on in life, he's not gonna be able to play with his children or maybe even his grandchildren. He's not gonna be able to be present for his family. He's not gonna be able to do those other things that he loves so much. And so understanding this, that this was so much greater than this, than football, than money, than fame, than all of that, that he chose this path and he chose to follow it. And I thought that had so many parallels to Matthew's decision because Matthew left behind wealth. He left behind a luxurious lifestyle. In some ways he left behind status as well, at least in Roman society. And he chose to give that all up and to follow Jesus, something that he believed was so much greater. And I looked at Andrew Luck's decision yesterday and saw so many parallels because he believed that this life was worth so much more, was so much better than this. And so he chose to give it up and he chose to move in this direction, which is exactly what Matthew did. And something that we understand about Matthew is that as a tax collector, he developed some incredible skills. He was persuasive. He was multilingual. He was well-traveled, so he understood cultures very, very, other different cultures very well. And also, he was courageous. Because as you can imagine, as a tax collector, he's ripping people off every single day. And so he has to look into people's eyes and have the courage to demand that they give him their hard-earned money, even though both of them knew that it was a total scam. And interestingly enough, these qualities were the same qualities that qualified him to be one of the greatest and most brilliant authors, to be a great and brilliant author. Because later on, what God did was that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he used Matthew to write one of the gospels in the New Testament, actually the first gospel in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And so, and the purpose of this book was to persuade his fellow Jews that Jesus was in fact the son of God, the savior of the world, the Messiah that they had been waiting centuries for. So Matthew, an extortionist, a man who was completely reviled by his people, he wrote a gospel message to serve them. And all throughout history, God has used this book to change people's lives. And so what we see with Matthew's story is, is that God was able to take his mistakes and create his masterpiece in order to create his masterpiece. And that's exactly what God wants to do in your life and in mine as well. Those mistakes that we believe that he could never ever use, those mistakes that we believe are the worst parts of who we are, the ugliest parts of who we are, 
when we give him our lives, and not just the good and the shiny parts, but also the bad and the ugly parts as well, which includes our mistakes, he is able to do something that is truly powerful and amazing, and that he is able to take our mistakes and create his masterpiece. And yesterday night, I was listening to a friend's podcast, and on this podcast, he was interviewing a man by the name of Kenneth Bay. And Kenneth Bay, if you remember, he was on the news a lot a number of years ago. But he was a U.S. citizen who was detained, imprisoned in North Korea for 735 days. And he was arrested on November of 2012, and it was a huge mistake. Not their mistake, but his mistake. Because what happened was, was that on the morning of November 2000, one of the mornings of November of 2012, he had woken up late. And so he was in a rush and in his bag was a portable hard drive, which he knew that he could not take into North Korea because it was illegal, but he forgot it was there. And because he had to catch a bus from China to North Korea, he just grabbed everything and he got on that bus. And of course they found it at the border. And so he was arrested and then ultimately then he was imprisoned to 15 years of hard labor in a North Korean labor camp. And he said the conditions were awful. I can't imagine it was like a hotel. But it was even worse than that from how it's, it's terrible conditions. Because every day he would have to wake up at 6 a.m. And then from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., six days a week, he was forced to work out in the fields. Shoveling coal, hauling rocks, didn't matter what the weather conditions were in the extreme heat or in the extreme cold. And he also said that in his room, he didn't have any screens for his windows. And so he was bitten all over. And he would kill more than 200 bugs a day just to simply survive and prevent them from biting him. He said he was so malnourished that in the first three months, he lost 50 pounds. And this just goes on and on and on. But he said that about a year in, God began to shift his heart, began to shift his perspective. And he began to see himself not as a prisoner, but rather as a missionary, someone who had actually been sent with purpose. And then... God began to shift his perspective about the guards and that he no longer saw them as his oppressors or his captors, but rather as people who he had been sent to to share the message of Jesus. And he said that when this perspective change started happening, some other amazing things started happening. Guards started coming to him and saying to him, Pastor, can I speak with you? And then they started, they would share with him about their families and the issues that they were experiencing the problems that they were experiencing in their marriage. They would ask him, how should I parent my child? Guards started asking him, if I choose to believe in this Jesus person that you're telling me about, what do I receive? And there was one interesting conversation that he had with a guard. And this guard said to him, if your Jesus is real, then why are you still here? To which, to which Kenneth said to him, what if Jesus has a different purpose? And he said, what if Jesus sent me here to tell you about him? And that just blew that guard's mind. Because he said, good point. Because prior to you being here, I had never heard about Jesus. And Kenneth Bay was released in November of 2014. And the very last question that my friend asked him, what I thought was such an interesting question, and that he said that if you could go back to that fateful day on November in November of 2012, would you remove that hard drive from your bag? Would you prevent yourself from making that mistake? And he thought about it for a moment and he said, you know what? No one has ever asked me that question 
before. So he took a few more moments to think about it, and he said, you know what, I wouldn't. Because then those guards would have never heard about the hope, the freedom, the life, the purpose that can be found in Jesus. And now he travels all around the world telling his story and inspiring people to pray for the more than 25 million North Koreans who have never, ever even heard about Jesus. And so he said, no, I wouldn't. I would do it all over again. Because he understood that God was able, Jesus was able to use his mistake to create his masterpiece. And that's what he wants to do in your life and in mine as well. That's what he did in Matthew's life. And so going back to Matthew's story, what happened was, was that Matthew's basically given a second chance by Jesus. And so you would have thought that after being given the second chance, that Matthew would have just completely changed his friend group, changed the people that he hung out with, left that whole life behind and everyone who was in it. You would have thought that he would have started spending time with people who were like him, other disciples, people who were well-respected in that culture. But that's not what he did. And that's not what Jesus led him to do. Because it says that then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Matthew threw a huge party for Jesus. Where Jesus wasn't a guest of the party. He was the guest of honor. Because Matthew wanted everyone to know that Jesus wasn't simply someone he knew but rather he was the one he followed. And just as his life had been completely changed by Jesus, he wanted everyone else to experience the same thing. But the religious leaders of the day, they heard what was going on. And so they showed up at this party and they said to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is what they were saying. They were saying, why do you, and more importantly, why does your teacher, who's supposed to be holy and good and clean, why is he spending time with the scum, with the dregs of our society? Wasn't so much a question as it was an accusation. Because for the religious leaders of the day, they never would have been caught dead doing what Jesus was doing. Because what they believed was, what made them unclean, what made them impure, was spending time with people who weren't like them, people who weren't Jewish, people who didn't adhere to the same laws and traditions as they did. They believed that what made them impure didn't come from in here, but rather out here, from the people that they spent time with, the places that they went, and the things that they did. They believed it was like a disease that could be transmitted and caught. And so they actively encouraged people to do the same, to avoid certain people, to avoid going to certain places. But what's Jesus doing? He's totally taking the whole system and putting it on his head. He was blowing it all up. And Jesus is spending time with these exact people. And not only was he spending time with them, he's actually eating with them, which in that culture was a totally different level. Because if you ate with someone, what you were communicating was, you were communicating a deeper unity, a deeper closeness. And you were also communicating that you accepted that other person. It's similar to our culture today. Because think about the people who we have lunch with. Think about the people who we invite over and into our homes to share a meal with. These are people that we want to get to know better. These are our friends. And when we're saying, hey, you know what? Come, let's share a meal together. Come into my home. Let's do this. What we're saying is 
we accept you to a certain degree. Very similar in that culture. And the religious leaders, they're just losing their minds. And so what Jesus does is that he knew exactly what they were thinking. And this is his response. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then Jesus tells us, and he told them and he tells us the purpose as to why he came. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that Jesus didn't leave heaven and enter into human history so he could congratulate people like religious leaders, people who were so satisfied with themselves, people who thought they had it all together, people who thought they knew exactly who was in and who was out with God. And the thing is, it's not like Jesus didn't, wasn't interested in these religious leaders. He tried to help them. But their response to him was, thanks, but no thanks. We got this. And so Jesus says, you know what? I didn't come for people who think they're healthy, people who think they're righteous, because you know what? These people don't want my help. They think they don't need my help. I came for people who know they're sick, people who know they're sinners, people who know they have made mistakes and not only hurt themselves, but hurt others. And they need something, or better yet, someone to come to help them, to come and to save them. And to these people, to us, Jesus said, come and follow me and I will change your life. Because what Jesus was saying is, and what Jesus can do, which is something that no one on this earth can do, is that he can transform sinners, people who have made mistakes, people who the world looks at and says, you have no value, we're gonna pick you last. And he is able to transform us into saints. People who he has created to do incredible things and to set us free and to allow us to live the life that he has created us to live. No one else can do this. And the truth is, is there is no one that is too far away from God. There's no mistake that we can make, nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says this so well. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation and not any mistake that any of us can make will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And maybe for some of us who are here today, maybe for some of us who are watching via stream, when, I talk, when we talk about mistakes, if you're anything like me, we don't have to think hard about those mistakes that we've made in our lives, those mistakes that have hurt us and have hurt the people in our lives who we love the most. They come to the forefront of our mind just like that. And maybe for some of us, we're thinking about those mistakes and we feel like Matthew. And we're so ashamed, we have so much guilt. And so we're sitting there with our head down. And what Jesus does is that he comes to us and he lifts up our head and he looks into our eyes with an otherworldly compassion and kindness and he extends to us the ultimate invitation. Come and follow me. Because maybe for some of us, for so long, we have believed, maybe we have even been told that because we have done these things, because we have made these mistakes, that Jesus wants nothing to do with us. He could never ever love us. He could never ever use us. And that is a total lie. 
Because what we see from Matthew's story, and not just Matthew's story, but when you look at so many other people in the scriptures, it could be the prostitute Rahab, it could be the apostle Paul who wrote more than half of the New Testament, and not just people in the Bible, but when you look at people all throughout history, when I look at my life, when I look at a friend of mine's, Bill's life, and we've told his story, Danny and I have told his story, someone who was an alcoholic for 45 years made so many mistakes. When we look at life after life after life, what we are able to see is that when Jesus says, come and follow me, and we say yes, he's able to do something that no one else can do. He's able to turn sinners into saints and to use our mistakes to create his masterpiece. And we're gonna see a beautiful story of Jesus doing exactly this in someone's life, a man named Charles who's out in New York City. And it's such a great example that Jesus is not only doing this work in this community, but truly all over the world. And as we're actually watching this video, we're also going to be receiving our offering. So our ushers are gonna come forward in a moment. And if you're a guest with us, let me first say, we are so thankful, we're thrilled that you're here, but please don't feel any obligation to give. But if you would like to give, the bags, offering bags will be coming around in a moment. Robin and I, we give online, so you can give that way as well. You can give via the app or you can text the word Kensington to 77977 as well. But if you're a guest with us, we'd love to meet you. We'd love for you to stop by the hub outside in the lobby if you have a moment afterwards. And we'd love to hear more about how you got here, answer any questions that you may have about our community. But if you are someone who does give, we wanna say thank you. Thank you that because of your generosity, we are able to truly have an impact in this world. So let's watch this story together. I can remember the first time I smoked crack. Gave me the sensation of uh, all of a sudden just relieved from all the, the brokenness and the hurt inside. And it was immediate high that I felt euphoria. That all of a sudden that in an instant, I felt good. Every time I had some money in my hand, I would run and go get some crack. In 1998, I was in New York City. I started off with a job, working part-time at UPS. And on Thursdays, when I would get my money, I wouldn't even make it home. I would go by the crack dealer. And thinking I was gonna take a couple hits and go home, I stayed in until all my money was gone. And eventually, I started using all my money and not paying my bills. And that became the number one priority in my life. It was powerful, it started controlling my life. And I couldn't sustain any type of uh, life, livelihood. I, I just quickly went down. Every so often I would call home for help. And my mother was always there trying to help me any way she could. So at that time I didn't know it was such an enabler, but she, out of a kind heart, she would help me out with money. And I'd tell her I would do the best I can and pay my bills. But most of the time, I used all the money for using crack. And that just kept me getting deeper and deeper in my addiction. And I didn't care about how I looked, 
how I smell. I would like ride the trains in the subway, get huddled up in the corner with the clothes I had and on for weeks, smelly, dirty, and pretty soon I isolated myself from everybody. I called home looking for help from my mother, for money, and my mother told me, Charles, don't call home anymore. And I never thought I'd ever hear that from my mother. My mother was a person that I always knew loved me. I was sure, without a doubt. And when she told me that, I just felt like I was just like worthless and there was no hope that there was no reason really to really put for any effort and even trying to quit smoking crack. And a couple of days after that, even when I was, I was walking around the Port Authority and I still had a crack pipe in my shoe and by the grace of God, God released me from my addiction. And I don't know, I can't explain to this moment how it happened, but I know that I was released and I knew what he was doing. And I started crying right then out of tears of joy because I got, I knew God felt my pain. He felt my pain and I knew I was released. And I was right there in front of a lady who was passing out tracks for the homeless, about, for Jesus. And I walked up to her and I said, I don't need to be here anymore. And she prayed for me. And she touched me on the shoulder and says, you love the Lord. And I left the Port of Authority after that. And someone, like an angel, came around the corner. And he said, no, go across, go over there on the corner. People's over there, they're feeding. And you can get some hot soup and hot cocoa. And I went over there and it was a relief bus. And that relief bus drove me to the rescue mission. And when I went to the rescue mission, I felt like I belonged. I walked in there and it was like a godsend. It was a place where you go there and you feel like people care about you. People love you. People take the time to see who you are. So at the mission, we don't really like to talk about homeless people because we believe they're people first. And homeless just happens to be a situation that they're in now. We believe that every single person is of great value and of dignity and worthy of love and respect. But they're often not treated that way as we see them on the street in New York City. They're more often viewed as a problem to be solved. But when you hear Cheryl's story, you realize all these years there was this amazing person uh, that was left hidden and buried behind the addiction and the poverty and the homelessness and the despair. It's good to see you, okay. Everything, how was your day? It was good, it was okay. good. I recognized early on that there was a, a special opportunity for Charles to leverage, you know, what all the years that were lost 
really could be leveraged for good and he could take his, his life experience and the transformation that he was going through and use that to encourage other people to join him on that journey. And that's exactly what he's done. And when he finally finished the program and we, we gave him an internship for a while and he went to school and began to study peer intervention and uh, peer mediation and went through training and took classes. And so when the time was right, you know, I created an opportunity for him to join the staff. And he really, in some respects, is like the face and the voice uh, of the mission. He's the first person we want people to meet. He's the voice we want them to hear because he's genuine, he's full of hope, and he just, he lifts people up. But let me tell you, when Jesus comes into your life, let me tell you, it turns all those things that I thought, like getting high, running uh, the streets, it turns that all around, and it gives you life, that joy inside, that you don't need no drugs, that you don't need, you don't need, you don't need to run after the streets. And what's telling you out there in the streets? It begins with the relationship with Jesus. I want everybody to begin a relationship with Jesus. Jesus says today, salvation today is at hand. Today it is. Not tomorrow, it's today. And I'm living proof right now. Now that I have my life back, I want to greet people who's on the streets now, help them make efforts to change their life. You'll be telling them testimony about how I overcame. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes the broken and makes it whole. I thought I, just like you, I thought I was a loser. But you're not a loser. You're a winner. You're a winner. To be able to walk with them like people walk through my life and just give them the love that it was given to me. I think that when you decide to link up with Jesus and hang out with God, he asks everything of you. And that everything is gonna impact the lowest uh, stratus of society, the poor, the marginalized, the forgotten. Jesus will give you abundant life and a wonderful life in Christ Jesus. And that began when I met somebody that knew Jesus, that really knew Jesus and came into my life and invited me into their life.
picture at the beginning with the broken pieces just all around which represents our world which represents our life and the fact that Jesus one of the primary reasons why he came was to bring restoration was to take the broken pieces of our lives and to make us whole to take those shattered pieces and to create something beautiful once again and how he did that was that he didn't just from heaven say hey you know what I'm just gonna magically do this but rather what he did was that he stepped into our mess. He stepped into human history and he walked with us. And then he paid the ultimate price so that we could be made whole. It's such a powerful, powerful picture of that, those pieces coming together. And Charles's story is also a perfect 
example of this as well, what he wants to do in every single one of our lives. And I love how Craig Mays described Charles, that there for so long, that there was this amazing person, but he was buried, he was hidden under all of these mistakes. And that person was hard to see. But Jesus didn't give up on him. He kept coming and coming and coming and saying, follow me, Charles. And the day that he said yes, he began to transform his life. And now he's using Charles in extraordinary ways. In so many ways, he's using his mistakes to create his masterpiece in the lives of the people around him in New York City. It's such an incredible story. But yet, this is what he wants to do in every single one of our lives as well. And the reason why he never gives up on us is because as we're gonna be singing in a moment and as we're gonna hear in a moment, is because of who we are and who he's created us to be, that we are his son, we are his daughter, we are his child. And therefore we are chosen and we are never ever forsaken. And as a result, he's gonna keep coming. And he says, follow me, follow me. Because if you do, I will lead you to life. I will lead you to freedom. I will lead you to purpose. And I will lead you to live the life, to step into the life that I've always meant for you to live. And so if you're able, we'd love 